All your base are belong to us. Uh, hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. Uh, I'm Missy. I am a writer, and I don't remember a time when I wasn't watching James Bond movies <laughs> at this point. I'm Mary. I'm a marketer, and I can now say that with the shirts. I, I'm going to miss your weird careers, though. I know, right? It was... Um, I mean, I could still have them. Uh, I have found the thing that I do like and love about James Bond going through the outline the other day. I love the cultural context. I think that's fair. Yeah. It's interesting. It is. I mean, that's not surprising for me. I always love the cultural context. That's the social science um, major coming out in me. Um, So, yeah, that's that's the road in which I take the rest of these bonds, which I wish I would have figured out sooner. And I think, you know, I think that bodes well for the 90s and 2000s bonds. Yeah, it'll make much more sense. And I'm actually figuring that out. I'm like, I'm much more aware of what I'm watching. Like, I watched Mm -hmm. the last one and I didn't really know what was going on. So I didn't. I was like, well, James Bond is here. And there's culture in this, so I'm unsure. Um, but going forward, I'll have a much greater grasp of what's going on. So I can't. I actually can't wait to try and figure that out. Nice. And then, and then, Missy, tell me if I'm right. <laughs> so today we are talking about kind of the leftover bonds, uh, the bond randos, as we've been calling them. You know, sometimes leftovers are good, and sometimes they're not. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of these were really the cold pizza of. Of Bond films. I think a lot of these were cold spaghetti, and then there was those two really good cold pizzas. Yeah. So we are talking about uh we are talking about <laughs> the 1967 Casino Royale, which is a non-canon spoof that a has perfect movie. very little to do with James Bond. We are talking about On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which I believe came out in 1969, which is canon. And very good. Starring George Lazenby, the only time he played Bond. We'll get into that later. We are talking about Never Say Never Again, the non-canon return of Sean Connery as James Bond in a remake of Thunderball. I don't, I, I don't even know what I watched. <laughs> I will get there too. Uh, and then we are talking about the two Timothy Dalton films, The Living Daylights and the and License to Kill. Um, Those are all right. Yeah, I, there were things I liked about them, and then there were other things that I found very boring about them, which is kind of the James Bond thing yeah Um, as james bond has a formula so do we in the things that we like about it oh yeah there's a formula to this episode for sure (laughs) because the thing is these movies have fuck all to do with each other like three of them are canon two of them aren't um three different actors one well there's like eight bonds <laughs> in casino royale if i don't take that into consideration there's george lazenby timothy dalton timothy dalton and uh uh sean connery again um so yeah it's we're going what we're going to do here is a little bit different from what we've been doing from the previous bond episodes we're going to go movie by movie and sort of talk about the things that we've been talking about in other bond episodes sort of as encapsulation of what was going on at each moment uh in bond history um which means that i think this episode is probably going to be a little more shallow than our previous episodes just because we can't really talk about each one as an we can only talk about like each movie or in the case of dalton the two movies as encapsulating an era um we can't like talk about culture i mean because we're going from 1967 all the way to 89 
Yeah. That's a that's a 22 year gap. That's so, a big like popular drug gap. That's a lot of <laughs> I don't know why I thought of that, but I just know Bond does a lot of cocaine. So he probably <laughs> loved the 80s. There's a lot of like there's a lot of cultural shift between 1967 and 1989. So um, we'll do our best to kind of talk in sections here, but we just simply aren't going to be able to cover everything. So, you know, it bear is. with us is the word, the phrase I was looking for. I'm sure you'll still enjoy it. I hope so. I mean, uh, if you're wa- listening to it, it's because you like Bond. Yeah. Or you just like to hear us talk about stuff. That's true. You could just like to hear us talk. Um, good for you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so first we're going to talk about Casino Royale. Uh, the 1967 film. It was just, I'm watching it and I didn't expect it. Like, you know, so my formula of liking Bond is at first, this is so silly. Oh, this is funny. And now you're trying to make a cohesive movie <laughs> and it just fell apart and all the funny things are not funny anymore. This one I was like, oh, this is funny. Oh, this is fucking awesome. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this is cool. But the middle was the best part. It was my. I think the the beginning was my favorite. I really? thought, yeah, I'll get into it. But I thought the the running joke of like Bond being disgusted with the Bond persona was really <laughs> funny, um, especially given the difference between Fleming's Bond and the Bond of the films. Um, so cultural context wise, there is simply just not a lot of information on what culturally led to Casino Royale. Um, people just really aren't fi- Bond scholars don't really care about 1967's Casino Royale. That's a shame because there's a reason it was made. It's it's not it's not like quote unquote proper Bond, right? It's a spoof. It is it is essentially the Austin Powers of Bond films except that they actually got to use the Bond name and it's better. <laughs> Cuz honestly there's like the Austin Powers films are like really take really good with a grain of grain of salt, you know, but like for they're, what they are. They're really good parodies of Bond to the yeah. point that like some of it is not parody. It's yeah. just like mimicking the yeah. bond films um obviously the big difference is the characterization of the the spy figure right because austin powers is not i think we should do an austin powers bonus episode i think that'd be great actually <laughs> and after we do this we should do an austin powers bonus. i episode. think we totally should i think that'd be so funny but um anyway just the first one the second fun- one's not good the second one has its moments. The first one's pretty funny. The first one's good. I never saw the third one, so. I don't think I did either. Uh, but anyway, the the big difference in, in Austin Powers versus James Bond is the central figure, right? Like, Austin Powers is very much not a gentleman spy, whereas James Bond is a gentleman spy. And in Casino Royale, you still have a series of gentleman spy figures. Um, but it still is a parody. Uh, it's just parodying different different things. Um in in the you know from from the realm of like what was happening in the world casino royale comes between thunderball and you only live twice um and it is actually anticipating the change in bond that would take place in 1969's 69's on her majesty's secret service mm-hmm. and then the switch back to connery with diamonds are forever in 1971 um so we can assume you know that many similar like the cultural context is going to be similar to what we talked about in the connery films right like there's the um fear about britain's power there is and like their um the changing cultural landscape there is um you know the underlying fear of the cold war and the threat of communism um the thing is just that casino royale is not interested in that like the the backdrop is always going to be there whether the film is about that or not but 
it's not interested in engaging with those themes in any kind of literal way, the way that the Bond films do. Do you think that the making this movie was kind of like a F you? This movie, making this movie was a hot fucking mess is what it was. <laughs> I'm going to do, I, it literally is so, it's so wild and we'll talk about it a bit, but it's like great. it is worth reading about the making of this movie because it's nuts. Like it is absolutely nuts. Um, so the first thing, since we don't really have much cultural ta- context to talk about, let's talk about the Bond formula. And I'm going to reread that quote from License to Thrill, A Cultural History of the James Bond Films by James Chapman, um, where that describes Umberto Eco's formula for Bond films. Now, it's important to remember that this formula was developed in response to the Connery films, right? And we are now bringing that formula out of the Connery space and into all of these other spaces. So I think we're going to see a lot more playing with that formula. But I think that's really interesting, especially as we're we're going through several different generations um, throughout this episode. So just to refresh your memory, here is the quote that discusses uh, Echo's formula. Umberto Echo suggests that Fleming's narratives are best understood as a sequence of moves in which the same archetypal characters play out familiar situations. M, head of the British Secret Service, makes the first move by assigning Bond to a mission of vital national importance. The villain moves and appears to Bond, usually by attempting to kill him. Bond counter moves and gives first check to the villain, usually by besting him in a game that provides a symbolic symbolic rattling of sabers before the main confrontation. The woman moves and shows herself to Bond. Bond seduces or begins the process of seducing the woman. The villain captures Bond and tortures him. Bond escapes, conquests the villain, and then convalesces with the woman whom he later loses. Within the schemata, there are variations. In Moonraker and Goldfinger, for example, Bond first encounters the villain before being assigned to investigate him by M, but they do not fundamentally change the narrative. I'm not going to read that five more times throughout the episode, so just... Just remember Just remember that. (laughs) Um, I think we can say safely uh, that Casino Royale largely does not adhere to this formula, right? (laughs) It kind of just is like an F you to the formula. Yeah, it it has nothing to do with it. Because one, it's not one of the Eon films. It's not canon. That's... It, not only is it not canon, it is not interested in being canon. Yeah. Like it has nothing to, it has very little to do with James Bond at all. Um, two, it's an intentional spoof, right? Like, so that's not, it's not going to adhere to the formula in the same way. Three, the movie itself is a disjointed mess. Like it, it makes only the slightest amount of sense, um, which is in part because it went through a ton of rewrites, like rewrite after rewrite after rewrite after rewrite. It, it was originally going to be a serious movie for a while before um, a good change. Yeah. Well, the thing was they, they realized it was going to be coming out at the same time as a proper bond film. Hmm. And so they're just like, well, fuck it. Let's just make it a spoof. Then um, it had five directors, one for each section of the film. I love that. It's wild. It is fucking wild. Peter Sellers, who plays Evelyn Tremble, um, a.k.a. James Bond, uh, he was so furious with so many different aspects of the film that he legitimately walked off set and never returned. Wow. Uh, which is why there are all these weird jump cuts in the mid to late movie. Like, you re- like you remember the part when he just gets in a race car? Yeah. That was from a different... <laughs> what? That was an outtake. Um, and then all of a sudden he's captured, but we don't see him get captured. That was because the part that was meant to be filmed there, he had walked off set and never returned. Um, The entire framing device of David Niven, who just as a reminder, was Fleming's original choice for who would play James Bond. And he only played him in the spoof. 
um, the the entire framing device of David Niven as Bond returning was orchestrated to replace all of the scenes that Sellers was meant to film but did not film. Wow. So my favorite part of the movie was actually a patch job um, for uh, for Peter Sellers leaving. It is an exquisite mess of a movie. Like it is an exquisite mess, Um, but it's pretty damn funny. It's so funny, especially in, in skewering aspects of that formula, in my opinion, um, such as Bond's promiscuity. I think the fact that the real James Bond played by David Niven is, and it's especially funny because again, he was Fleming's original choice and movie Bond has, you know, it has some things in common with novel Bond, but they're, they're significantly different. Um, The fact that the, the like, Fleming ideal bond is like I hate that my name is being used to be promiscuous and disgusting I hate that this sucks um I think that's extremely funny like I think that's a really good joke um and there's also the the more general idea that the number one threat to British agents is hot women I think is very funny. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. And also the idea to simply name everybody James Bond 007 is kind of genius. It is hilarious. It's the best way to be a spy. Yeah. that Especially because James Bond constantly in every movie. Hello, I'm Bond. James Bond. Yeah. Secret. Like he could he could just wear like a shirt that says, hello, I'm a secret agent. And it would cause less problems. Yeah. Um. So it doesn't adhere to the formula as the answer, but it, it seems to be aware of the formula and is intentionally like playing with that a bit, which I think is is part of what makes it such a fun parody, even though it is like notoriously not well liked, um, especially if you are like if a you're James a Bond fan. It's not necessarily a James Bond fan. I think it's if you're a James Bond purist. Ah, um, but I thought it was I thought it was I delightful. It. There's not I like his daughter. Yeah. She, for me, I was just like, everything she did, I was like, this is awesome. Why is she not just taking over for, like, everything? Part of the, like, one of the things I like about the movie is just how how fucking weird it is. Like, why does it become a German expressionist film in the middle? (laughs) There's no reason. There's literally... No reason. That's the reason. There's why no reason. why it seems to be shot in the in the house of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Like there's literally no reason that that should be taking it's place. It's great. But I love that it's for it. It's so good. It just this is the thing. Bond for me is so absurd and ridiculous that and it that always feels to lean in in the beginning and then kind of pull away. Um like I was saying earlier and this just kind of was like no, we have to be all in. Yeah. And it's it's like not it's not a good movie. I don't even know what the plot was for it. I don't know. There's like parts of it that that make sense and then it'll switch directors and then you have to start from square one again. Yeah, I think it's a really good example of what I like. I feel like the other bonds are missing the ridiculousness that does not carry me through the rest of the movie. Right. And I think a lot of it is just like, I just don't like James Bond. I, I think that's fair. Um, so let's talk a little bit about masculinity in this movie, because I think it does some really interesting things by virtue of being what it is. Um, so I have a quote I want to read here from Queer Re- Queer Review, Casino Royale 1967, which is by David Lowbridge Ellis, um, who writes, this is too much for one James Bond, the posters and trailers declared. While such multiplicity incenses some fans, for others it raises the entertaining possibility. Could any of us be James Bond, regardless of gender identity or sexual orientation? James Bond's penis has received more than its fair amount of attention, academically and otherwise. Toby Miller puts it to great use in an essay on Bond and cultural imperialism, which he notes 
in which he notes that while potent in some regards, Bond's penis is a threat to him, a means of being known and of losing authority. Although Miller does not invoke the 1967 Casino Royale in his essay, the film makes this literal the film makes this literal with Sir James Bond bemoaning the fact that so many agents have been assassinated while on the job, as it were, in places of ill repute, with one stabbed to death in a lady's sauna bath, another burnt in a blazing bordello, and another garroted in a geisha house. The conclusion appears to be heterosexuality is dangerous in the world of Casino Royale. To reduce the risk to their agents, Sir James sows confusion by renaming all agents James Bond 007, man or woman. The Eon James Bond's penis is a liability, so it's best to give his name to everyone regardless of their genitalia. Um, so in this essay, Lowbridge Ellis is intentionally constructing a queer reading of Casino Royale, which is interesting on quite a few levels. The novel, ac- the novel of Casino Royale... Um, the one by Fleming actually has some queer content in a homophobic hmm. fashion. I haven't talked about that yet. I did read it. Um, I'll talk about it more in uh, in the Craig episode when they actually did adapt Casino Royale after numerous rights battles. Uh, there's a reason that that they were able to make this spoof and call it Casino Royale, even though maybe one third of the movie has anything to do with Casino <laughs> Royale. Um, but I did read it. So the novel actually does have queer content in a homophobic way in that the villain, Le Chiffre, uh, who is played in the film by Orson Welles, um, who insisted that he will, he be allowed to do magic tricks good. in this role. This has, th- the magic tricks have no- nothing to do with anything. It's just good. Orson Welles was just like, I want to do magic tricks. And the director of that particular section was like, you're right. You should do magic tricks. Um, so in in Casino Royale, the book, uh, La Chiffre is cold is queer coded, and he um, spoilers. Um, he beats the shit out of Bond and specifically his penis um, to a point that Bond actually begins to doubt his masculinity and his status as a man and his sexual performance until he sleeps with a woman again. Um, of course which we will talk about that more when we reach the actual adaptation of that book. But there is this sense that um, the, the, the penis James Bond's penis is the site of his manhood. Like that makes, that makes sense when you look at the movies. Yeah. Like if he doesn't, if, if his penis is not functioning, then therefore he is not a man. If he don't fuck, then he don't fuck. Right. It's, it's really, it is genuinely interesting. Is it homophobic? Absolutely. But it is, it is, and there's all kinds of things wrong with that assumption, but it is genuinely fascinating to see how it plays out. So the, the textual um, support for queerness, even if it is homophobic exists in the text of, of, um, of Casino Royale. So it's not actually surprising to find some playfulness with that in the spoof. Um, So, the point that Lowbridge Ellis brings up here is really interesting because if anybody, even women, even men who aren't hypermasculine, et cetera, can be Bond, then there is no fixedness to Bond's characterization, right? It, it Bond's characterization, the, the James Bondness of Bond, is not situated in his penis, which is what the novel, or at least Bond within the novel, um, believes for a time. The things that make him James Bond aren't masculinity or sexual prowess or even his literal penis, which means that his identity and by extension, the identities of people who have fixated on Bond as like an aspirational subject are not fixed either. It sort of destabilizes the entire idea of what James Bond and therefore what someone who likes James Bond is. If I, you know, if I, if suddenly women are liking James Bond and I'm some asshole who's like Bond is for men only. Um, and suddenly this movie is saying, well, a woman can be Bond and 
you know, Bond isn't what you think he is anyway. He doesn't, he is not hyper promiscuous and he's this old British dude who lives in the countryside and doesn't fuck. Um, then that's going to feel uh, alienating to you as an audience, which honestly is when we talk about uh, queering in the academic sense, like that is kind of queering the notion of James Bond, whether Casino Royale is doing it intentionally or not. Um, queer icon now. Now James Bond is a queer icon. <laughs> Uh, interestingly, Lowbridge Ellis situates Bond's masculinity, particularly his mac- masculinity as expressed through sex with women, as a site of weakness. Um, and he's not the only person to do so, actually. Uh, Jeremy Black, who writes another book that we'll talk about later, or we'll talk about, yeah, it just hasn't come up yet. Um, Jeremy Black suggests that Bond is weakest after sex, which he demonstrates through the fact that um, uh, Fatima Blush in Never Say Never Again um the, the the absolutely buck wild woman um she uh after sex she plants a homing device on bond um because he's at his weakest in that moment so what lowbridge ellis is suggesting here is in line with what other bond scholars have suggested about him as well that he's weak after sex um the heteros uh yeah it was really interesting to me uh, though heterosexuality is not always dangerous in the Eon films, nor in Never Say Never Again, um, a James Bond without sexual desire, not necessarily that he doesn't have sex because sex is certainly useful to a spy, mm-hmm. um, but rather that he would be, be able to overcome his sexual desire would likely have fewer problems even in the Eon universe. Like if if James Bond was never tempted to have sex with anybody for a reason that was not the job, he would be a lot safer generally. I mean, yeah, look at all the women who turn on him. Exactly. It's so interesting in these movies because I can, like, at first I can always never figure out who's the Bond girl in this. <laughs> you know when they have sex. Well, they, I feel like he's always having sex. Well, what kind of sex he's having is I a good guess indicator. that's true. Uh, it's a good indicator of whether the woman is evil or not. Mm. That's right. Um, in Casino Royale, they even go so far as to train one of the agents to resist women's attractiveness because of the liability that men's libidos represent to the organization. So I think that destabling, destabilizing the idea of who you know James Bond is is a very good joke, but also a legitimately interesting pushback on the narrative of the Eon films. Why is our hero a heterosexual cis white man when we're repeatedly told that that same demographic can't control themselves, right? Not only in the Eon films, because we're shown that but also like in the world yeah it's always like oh you gotta cover up because men can't can't be trusted and but like no matter how old you are and yet that is our (laughs) that is our hero of the story and his inability to control himself it's it's truly wild and without the parody angle i don't think we would see that um so as much as the movie kind of has very little to do with the canon bond it also has a lot to do with the canon bond it's um, such a good movie. It was it was so interesting. That's the cultural context of it. It was interesting. No, that it's all of it has to say about Bond. Oh, <laughs> um, so this is another quote from that same s that same essay by Lowbridge Ellis. Um, Sir James feels safe, self-conscious about his stammer, which clears up when he starts resuming his work for Her Majesty's Secret Service, suggesting that he felt less of a man because of his dereliction of duty towards queen and country rather than any perceived sexual inadequacy. Getting back to work also seems to awaken his libido. Now in charge of the Secret Service, Sir James start, takes a prurient interest in Vesper's naked form when he calls her as she's bathing. So as Lowbridge Ellis points out, sexuality is actually intertwined with duty to country in Casino Royale and also in the Eon films, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, that's how you end up with lines like keeping the British end up, right? Like that's that's an innuendo. It's a joke about sex, but it's also a statement of James's mission, which is like using, which is being an agent of um, English power in, in the, the world. Yeah. And as we'll talk about later, um, punishing a woman who wants recognition for her sexual prowess by killing her with a Union Jack pen is also a form of tying together sexuality and uh, sexual aggressiveness and also duty to country. Hmm. Um, once the bond of Casino Royale is back in service to his country, he regains his libido, which maybe is a commentary on patriotism or maybe just a funny gag. Who knows? But the association is there regardless. Like suddenly he wants to have sex again once he is back in the role of British agent. So interesting. Yeah. And you don't really know, like, did they mean to? Because the movie is such a hot mess. <laughs> but I feel like that has to be intentional. It could be. Or maybe he's just not attracted to Scottish women. We don't know. I don't think there's many women he's not attracted to. Sir James Bond? I get, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. who I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was literally in the bath with a woman and he's yeah. like, don't. Um, hmm. Interesting. Another quote from that same essay, uh, Lowbridge Ellis writes, Q's assistants, Fordyce, played by John Wells, who would go on to impersonate Margaret Thatcher's husband at the end of Eons for Your Eyes Only, <laughs> I didn't I didn't get the chance to talk more about that. This is me, not part of the quote. But the fact that he plays the husband of Margaret Thatcher is a lot. Um, anyway, Margaret he, Thatcher's husband was a stay at home husband, wasn't he? Probably. I believe he was. Um, anyway, he is a camp homosexual caricature. Queer critic Vito Russo would have four dice termed a sissy, an archetype dating back to the early days of cinema. Sissies were safe because they were desexualized. The film of Russo's favorite famous book the celluloid closet observes that the sissy quote made everyone feel more manly or more womanly by occupying the space in between unquote mm. and that's what fordyce does to i hope his name is pronounced fordyce it has now been weeks since i watched this movie so i apologize I mean, it looks like it um Anyway, and that's what Fordyce does in Casino Royale. He's there to aid Tremble's transition to the macho James Bond figure by appearing effeminate alongside someone who, mere scenes before, was camping it up himself. The intent is signaled at the very start of the scene, with Q introducing Tremble to Fordyce as the new man. So there's a lot of interesting stuff about queer history and filmmaking throughout this whole article, so I definitely recommend reading the whole thing. Like, it was super interesting. It was a great essay. Um, but I think Lowbridge Ellis is spot on here. Having this clearly queer-coded man isn't great, like, representation. Like, it's not like, oh, wow, look at the queer rep in <laughs> in James Blair in Casino Royale. Um, he is there to make Tremble look more masculine by comparison, even though Tremble is, is initially meant to not be particularly masculine. So in order to establish his masculine masculinity and his transformation they just throw a gay man in there to be like well now he's super masculine isn't he perfect um and even even so it's something of an acknowledgement that queerness does exist to some extent in this world right the fact that fordyce exists tells us that queerness exists in this world hmm. um so if anyone can be james bond as we establish in this movie even fordyce could ostensibly be <sighs> james bond and therefore james bond could be a gay man yes like I mean, James Bond could be anything at this mm -hmm. point. Yeah. A fork. He could be a fork. We don't know. Um, so, yeah, that's that's really all I have for Casino Royale because it does exist outside the canon and is doing something quite different yeah. from the rest of the film. It's so good, though. But it was very funny. Unfortunate that Woody Allen is in it. Um, yeah. But playing himself, I'm sure. Uh, but unfortunately, he is there um, and you do have to tolerate him. There's also some racism. Um, as you can expect from a comedy film from 1967. 
but on the whole, quite enjoyable, in my opinion. Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. So let's talk about On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Also good. Uh, 1969, also good. This one comes right after You Only Live Twice, which doesn't make any fucking sense because You Only Live Twice directly followed this one um, in in the novels uh, because it is about him, Bond, dealing with the loss of his wife. Uh, But they just decided to throw that away and do them backwards. It doesn't make any fucking sense. It would have been so much better if they did on Her Majesty's Secret Service and then you only live twice, but they fucking didn't. So (laughs) that's what we have. So (laughs) on Her Majesty's Secret Service uh, performed worse overall than the Connery films, uh, which was blamed on a number of things. Uh, The downer ending, Lazenby's performance, Lazenby himself, the fact that Lazenby wasn't Connery. Um, Pretty much they had a lot of reasons to to blame uh, anything but the movie itself for uh, for the lack of success. Lazenby said he would never do another Bond film after how he was treated, and Eon was more than happy to kick him to the curb in favor of bringing Connery back for Diamonds Are Forever. Lazenby actually cracks me the fuck up because um, for a variety of reasons that I'll get into get into later. But the one I didn't have in there was the fact that he left this movie. He grew long hair and a beard. Oh, and then yeah. said, "I'm not about that life anymore. I'm about peace now." Yeah, he got like real hippie. I love it. It's so good. I was reading about him. And I was like, wow, he, I feel like this was like a turning point in his life where he's like, no, yeah, I will not. Yeah, it's it's wild. Um, love that new direction for George Lazenby. Also, he makes I read some interview with him where he made some really bad jokes and it was really oh funny. Like, uh, what are you up to now, George Lazenby? And he's like, oh, you know, I'm. it's all about the family bonding. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so this is a quote from License to Thrill, a cultural history of the James Bond films by James Chapman. We're in the cultural context section, by the way. Great, great, great. Uh, An article by one such critic in the New York Times in February 1970 suggested that the Bond films had suddenly become relics of the past. What had seemed fresh and exciting earlier in the 1960s had become outmoded by the end of the decade. The Bond films had failed to keep pace with the great social and cultural upheavals of the late 1960s, particularly the emergence of various countercultures to whom James Bond now seem to square an old-fashioned figure. Sidebar for me, I think this is where um, where Austin Powers becomes a really great parody mm-hmm. of the James Bond films is that Austin Powers, in fact, does embody a countercultural figure, mm-hmm. whereas James Bond does not. James Bond is establishment. Austin Powers is countercultural. Now, whether the, the Austin Power movies are great movies is a enti- entirely separate point. The, the point is countercultural versus establishment is what makes the parody interesting. Back to the actual quote. Uh, the writer A. Marx admitted to being, quote, disturbed by the lavish violence which had previously amused so much, unquote, especially in the aftermath of the civil dis- disorders of 1968 through 1969, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, and, quote, the useless obscenity of death of Vietnam. And then a further quote, we are enlightened young men and women who have learned the importance of knowing the enemy and we have learned how n- learned to know him well in real life. In fact, we are downright intellectual about the enemy and we aren't buying any hate propaganda, unquote. I think this quote from A. Marx here is just kind of wishful thinking. <laughs> um, now, you know, 50, 60 years removed from 55-ish, whatever. Anyway, substantially removed from this cultural context, I think it's wishful thinking that we uh, are not buying hate propaganda propaganda anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it is interesting with regard to the response to On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which honestly, I thought was really good. Yeah, of the the canon Bond movies, I'd say that's probably my favorite. Yeah, it's definitely up there. I thought it was overall really solid. It had some boring bits, um, but the skiing 
Love it. So good. Really like Tracy Bond. I thought she was a great addition. We'll talk more about her later. Um, I thought Lazenby's performance was good. I, yeah. I really liked him as Bond. Yeah. Uh, it's a shame about how he was treated on the set. But then we got hippie Lazenby. But then so. he turned into a hippie and I love that for him. Yeah. Um, if audience, so if audiences, you know, in, in 1969, 1970, et cetera, we're seeing Bond as a relic of the past, of past cultural ideals, especially in light of violence going on in the US and elsewhere in the Vietnam War and all that kind of stuff. It does make sense that on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is the most explicitly patriotic of the Bond films to date, right? Because mm-hmm. this is, mm-hmm. this one's pretty fucking pretty fucking patriotic i mean the name yeah um it makes sense that that would not resonate as much with audiences if that in fact was the case um that said we do kind of have to take it with a grain of salt because these movies continued to come out and were immensely popular right like it's not like suddenly nobody was watching james bond there was like a huge cultural shift and everybody's like fuck james bond fuck Fuck the man yeah um that's not what happened they were still very popular movies even if their popularity waned that's so interesting to me that they were still popular yeah i mean i people love comfort food I guess that's true. Right? These are very comforting. <laughs> yeah. If you if you like James Bond and you want to be comforted about the state of like your country's um, position of power in the world, mm. James Bond's still going to give that to you. Even I guess if, that's true. Even if you're worried about it. Um, so I, I totally understand why they remain popular. And like, you know, even the, the bad, like the less good ones um, and the bad ones for that matter are like still solid popcorn viewing. They're, I think, the equivalent of like you know one of the i don't watch a lot of action movies so i'm racking my brain here trying to think of like mediocre action movies that people watch um (laughs) i don't know the expendables or something like you're not they're not like necessarily changing filmic history or anything but you're like people are still going to see them and having a good time i've seen some of them are they filmic masterpieces i cried at one that's good i easily cry and then somebody's like wife died or something and it was very sad so i cried um but i like very easily cry so it's not like anything yeah i think if you took that and had it and had it like analyzed it as a response and like the way it has a conversation with other action movies that'd be interesting yeah i'm sure i just don't watch a lot of action movies so i don't know what action movies are like flash in the pan kind of things you know yeah um unfortunately i can't testify to what those movies are um the the equivalent would be like a mediocre rom-com like uh (laughs) fuck i can't even think of any well, that's because they're mediocre. Just Like Heaven. I love Just Like Heaven, though. <laughs> I haven't seen that in so long. I loved it. Anyway, um, I think that um, even if they were being that for audiences, like people are still going to see them and having a good time mm-hmm. and enjoying them. Because um, there's always somebody out there who's going to find a movie that everybody else hates and they're going to be the one that loves it. Mm-hmm. I am frequently that person. Yeah, that's um, true. So uh that's about all i have for cultural context so we'll move into the formula here and in fact cultural context is everywhere but we're going to talk about the formula here so in the politics of james bond by jeremy black um black writes the wooden lazenby lacked connery's style and some of his actions such as goosing money penny and admiring the playboy fold out were tacky the casting of diana rigg the strongest of the bond girls was a necessary response to the weakness of the new bond now I have to be honest. I don't know what's so much worse about Bond goosing many pe- money penny than all of the myriad awful things that Connery's Bond did, like slapping right? women, right? Which I think Lazenby's also 
Lazenby B's Bond also slapped women. So I'm not saying Lazenby's Bond is better than Connery's Bond. Only that. I mean, Connery's Bond also strong-armed a lesbian into having sex with him. But This is true. I mean, whatever. Okay, I guess somehow Lazenby's Bond is tackier than Connery's Bond. <laughs> Go off, I guess. Um, but I think what Black says here about the casting of Diana Rigg, who at the time um, played Emma Peel in The Avengers, which was a British... Um, a British action adventure show. I think about secret agents. I haven't seen it. Um, but she was, she was very popular and her character in the Avengers was very, um, like capable and very well known. So she at the time was more, way more famous than Lazenby who up until this point had only been a model. He had, this was his first acting job. <laughs> I didn't know that one. Yeah, this was his only. This was his very first acting job. Um, so I think what Black writes here about the casting of Diana Rigg carries weight, especially because it was Lazenby's first role, uh, and also he was different from the expected British masculinity because he looks nothing like Sean Connery, right? Who himself was different from uh, Fleming's idea of masculinity, mm-hmm. which would have been David Niven. So you have the David Niven style of British ma- British masculinity, and then you have this tra- this transition into Sean Connery, who looks quite different from the expected masculinity, and then you have that further transition into Lazenby, who frankly is kind of a pretty boy. Yeah, um, and I also, agree with that. And also, he's Australian. He's not even British. How did they not catch that one? I mean, they did. They just had him. At, how did you not catch it? Or how did movie? I not catch it? Oh well, I think he's I think he's speaking with a British accent. Oh, okay. Uh, how good that British accent is is lost on me because yeah, I am know. American. Yeah. I don't know shit. Um, and also the, the American way. <laughs> yeah, not knowing shit. Um, the creators of the movie also didn't seem to have a lot of faith in Lazenby. Uh, in fact, they were worried that he was gay. What? And they sent girls up to his room <gasps> to basically test whether uh, whether he was gay or not. Now, uh, Lazenby Super was not gay. He actually heard of the role while having a threesome with what I assume was two other women. He got a hot tip from one of the women he was having sex with uh, wow. that he should stop by a certain barbershop to meet with, I think it was uh, Albert Broccoli, and throw <sighs> his hat in as Bond. Uh, and also, he slept with almost every women, woman on the On Her Majesty's Secret Service set aside from Diana Rigg. He could not get Diana Rigg. Well, who can? I uh, who can. <laughs> um, so he was not treated well on the set. They thought he might be gay, um, so they were sending all these women up. In fact, he was sleeping with everybody. That's so weird. Is it just because the way in which he acted out James Bond? Like, I am not sure. I'm I'm genuinely unsure of what they what thought was what why they thought that. Um, but it is like. It is what it is. They thought that. Maybe he got them to think that because they kept sending up women and he's like, this works for me. <laughs> just keep just keep sending them. Just keep sending them. Um, so he so the reception to to um Lazenby was just very weird overall. Um, so this is a quote from License to Thrill, a cultural history of the James Bond films by James Chapman, who writes, Whereas you only live twice had completely discarded Fleming's plot, Secret Service is the closest of all the films to its original source. Again, however, this fidelity to the original is out of step with the direction of the series as a whole, insofar as the films, which followed during the 1970s, um, were to become completely removed from Fleming. So it's actually interesting to me that On Her Majesty's Secret Service was so poorly received for a lot of reasons. Honestly, I thought George Lazenby was great. Yeah, I liked him. And I thought the movie overall was pretty good. Especially Smash Between You Only Live Twice and Diamonds Are Forever, <laughs> neither of which I thought were good at all. Agreed. Um, uh, 
but a lot of the film's poor reception was blamed on it not feeling like a Bond movie. Because it was good. <laughs> and it having an unhappy ending. So what is it that it's not doing that doesn't... Is it just the actor? Is it just Lysenby? Like, the way in which he plays him that doesn't feel like a Bond movie? Because it felt like a Bond movie to I me. think what it is is that it's closer to the books, which we'll get into oh. a little bit later. Um, but the books are not corny action fair um not to spoil too much of casino royale but uh when we get towards things uh casino royale is quite critical of bond as a figure he's a haunted figure he has a drinking problem Mm. and that is like that is part of his characterization in the books whereas in the movie he's just a fun guy right like he's just having a good time um, not so in the books. He's uh, he's going through it. He uh, he's thinking about like leaving the secret service. He's thinking about his his function. He's thinking about all of these different things that just don't come through in the films. Um, we do see them, however, in uh in the Dalton films because Dalton was a big fan of the novels. Mm. Um, so we'll talk about that idea a little bit more when we get to the Dalton films. Um, but uh, I think I think that some of the poor reception was in fact the the um how close it adhered to the books which are a little more critical of the role of like a trained killer um and also the unhappy ending because you don't go, like it's like you know a betrayal of the genre um because and i think this is pointed out in license to thrill um but bond movies almost became a genre in themselves yeah not just a film franchise but a genre well it it makes sense because when you watch them the formula whatever but like other movies that are similar to it just like it just always gets compared to Bond, right? Mm-hmm. And I just feel like there's so many of them. They're so easily like, oh, that's the way in which James Bond is to the point of if James Bond isn't like that, people dislike it. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that it becomes its own genre. Yeah. You like it's not so like Bond movies can fall into the genres of like action or spy thriller or whatever. But I think there's also a genre of Bond movie. Yeah. And I think that's why that we ha- why we are able to have like this formula that we can trace throughout the different films, even yeah. though often they'll they'll push back on that formula or play with it in a different direction. Yeah. It's like James Bond, but it's like James Bond, right? But and I think um, it's like James Bond's butt. <laughs> in that sense, on Her Majesty's Secret Service is kind of a betrayal of the James Bond mm-hmm. genre. In the same way that, for example, if you went to a rom com and all the characters fucking died at the end. You would be like, uh, I came for a rom-com. Excuse me? And you show up to a Bond movie and he's like, not like at one point he's exhausted. He has to be saved by a woman. He's not superhuman strength. And then a girl dies at the end and he's traumatized. Like that's a betrayal of that's your expectations. Not Bond? Exactly. He would never be upset about a dead woman. Exactly. So having this downer ending to a Bond film with a fairly serious and grounded plot, like the allergy clinic is wild, right? But comparatively normal to like blowing up the moon. That I could see, yeah. I can see how that would be irritating to a Bond purist or somebody who has who is only interested in the the films and not the Bond that's happening in the books. Hmm. So this wasn't received well. No, it was not. Uh, they he was going to do Diamonds Are Forever, but he refused to do another, and they didn't want him mm. after this. They, I think, they were willing to just say it was it was Lazenby's fault. Hmm. Um. So let's talk about masculinity. As one does. As 
James Bond. As one does. Uh, So this is a quote from License to Thrill, a cultural history of the James Bond films by James Chapman, who writes, Physically, Lazenby looks the part. His on-screen movement combines athleticism with an arrogant swagger, and he manages to convey the snobbery of the character. For example, in identifying, identifying beluga caviar from the North Caspian, Although his lack of experience is evident in some of the lengthy dialogue scenes, it also paradoxically has the effect of making his Bond a more believable character. Whereas Connery's Bond had become a heroic Superman, Lazenby's Bond comes across as vulnerable and consequently more human. This is especially evident in the scene at the skating rink, where an exhausted Bond hides from his pursuers and appears to have reached the end of his tether, whereupon Tracy appears to rescue him. Personally, to me... This makes Lazenby's Bond more interesting. Like, I liked Lazenby's Bond because he felt like a person. There were stakes. Yeah. If he can be hurt for even a brief moment of time, that means that there are some stakes to the story, which is not something I felt from Connery's Bond. Yeah. Um, But that's not necessarily what people come to Bond movies for, right? Do you think that there was, like, that lot? People felt the loss of their, um, like, safe, not safety net, their comfort? I think so. I think, because I think if you're watching, I mean, like like we said about rom-coms, you know, if you're watching, um, if you're watching, a, you go into a movie expecting a rom-com and you don't get it. Like, okay, for example, if you went into Bridesmaids and you were expecting a straightforward Mm rom-com, you would be like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) The man is barely in it. This girl is going through depression. Like, I mean, I guess I read a book like that where it was supposed to be a rom-com and suddenly there's an attempted rape and, like, (laughs) sexual harassment. Yeah, and And that doesn't necessarily make it not good. It just, it's if it's not matching your expectations, then it's not what you wanted and you can feel betrayed by that. Okay. Um, so that's, you know, this, this idea of Bond as a human is not necessarily what people are coming to the Bond movies for, right? They're coming to the movies for him being Superman. Um, so when we're talking about masculinity in these films, that display of weakness where not only is he exhausted, but he's rescued by Tracy is a problem, right? Like that's, that is problematic within the context of a Bond movie, as a genre bond might be hurt in films like he might get shot or cut with a sword or whatever but it's usually temporary and until until this point i don't think that there were any other rescues by women i think that 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 this was they might help yeah but it's always about bond i'm trying to think it's we've watched a lot of bond films i and, feel like and not in order was one shallow like shallow like she saved them but i feel like it was moonraker that would have come after this oh okay okay uh, yeah, that that was more. So okay, that would have been afterward. <laughs> okay, that's um, right. I forgot this is in a weird place. <laughs> yeah, narratively, I think the rescue by the woman is great. The of one, course, yeah, the one time he needs somebody, a woman saves him, and that is the person he ends up marrying. I think that's great narratively. Yeah. Uh, but it does fly in the face. It makes her different than the other ones. Mm-hmm. It puts her. It puts her like he could have married all of them, but he didn't. And there's a reason. Yeah. And it tracks it tracks that the woman he would choose to marry is the woman who can keep up with him yeah. and not only keep up with him, but surpass him sometimes. Yeah. That that makes sense that that would be attractive what to makes him. It's such a better movie. Yeah. Um, but it do- that does fly in the face of the usual Bond formula, right? To have not only a woman who can keep up with him, but a woman that bests him at one point. She's and then cool. to have him fall in love. That's not the Bond formula. She needed to be dominated. Mm hmm. 
And because Bond's masculinity is all wrapped up in his politics and his actions, having a woman save him is emasculating and it's a violation of his politics. Um, Her father is French. Her mother is British, but she saves him. So what does that mean? You know, if his sexuality is his politics, what does it mean to have somebody who is not British save him? It's just not right. (laughs) It just isn't Bond, It's just not right. Uh, In the same way that sexually aggressive women must be punished by the narrative for transgressing their roles, Tracy also has to die because she doesn't act right. Of course. Right? Um, But instead of just feeling like a realigning of the properness of the universe the way it often does, so... Uh, and this is looking forward a bit, but Mayday is the perfect example, right? She doesn't, Mm -hmm. she does not align with the proper behavior for a woman. Therefore she has to die. And that's kind of a realigning of what the universe should be in the bond universe. Um, Instead, Tracy's death is a whole arc, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It's not, unfortunately not one that we get to see through the rest of the films, (laughs) but bonds grief is, is something that we never see elsewhere in the films. And that, again, is a violation of the expectations of a Bond film. Um, Tracy does come up again, but only briefly. And we don't get to see the effects that her death has on Bond in the way that the novels explore that, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because I think it's really interesting. But she, he, they can't because then that means he only had one woman. Yeah. And not. you don't want James Bond to cheat because that's not good either. <laughs> Um, this is another quote from License to Thrill where Chapman writes on Her Majesty's Secret Service is unique in that for the first and only time in the series Bond experiences a conflict of interest between love and duty the relationship between Bond and the girl is mapped onto the relationship between Bond and his country Bond's love affair with Tracy performs an ideological role very different from his sexual conquests in any of the other films rather than the girl being repositioned it is Bond who finds his allegiance being called into question Um, This is another reason that Tracy is basically doomed, right? Because uh, her involvement, because of her involvement with Bond, he has to question what's more important to him, which is never an issue until this point. It's always about Britain. He loves Britain more than anything. If Britain had a personified woman, which I think she does in folklore, he would seduce that woman and marry her. That that's the only woman for Bond. Um, But in this movie, we have Tracy, who is, again, French and and British representing something that actually is a challenge to to him Hmm. um she makes him question his allegiance and his role as you know a killer for the government um until now the women usually serve the ideological questions like bad women you know quote unquote who are typically foreign Mm -hmm. uh they work for the opposition and they are more likely to be sexually aggressive are sexual partners for bond and afterward convert to his side or are killed you know, I I couldn't get why I'm like, this still feels like a Bond movie, but going into like the way in which the women interact with him, I really, I can see now how people would be like, this isn't Bond. Mm-hmm. Because that's a huge part of it, right? That's a huge part of Bond is the women in which he conquers. Yeah. And to be not conquered, I guess, but um, him not conquered. He definitely conquers women. Yeah. Um, It can feel like, I definitely feel like it could be like, well, uh, that's not bond you yeah know? and that it almost could feel easily feel like a personal attack yeah if you're if you're if your expectations are that this is going to play out like previous films and it doesn't there's certain there's a certain degree of freedom you can have within a formula where it's fun and exciting and then you can go too far and then it's just irritating yeah. um which you know to be fair i think is how people feel about the last jedi like yeah. there's a formula here and you're not adhering to it and yeah. i don't like that yes 
Um, I think that's just something that naturally happens with large film franchises. Whereas for like me, it just feels refreshing. Yeah, it feels exciting. Um, that's how I feel about On Her Majesty's Secret Service too, yeah. to an extent. That's probably why I like that and Casino Royale so much. Yeah, they do something interesting with the with the formula. Um, so there's you know bad women who have to be either they either are converted through having sex with Bond or they are killed. Um, good women will always aid Bond in his mission, but they stay out of the way, right? They're not a challenge. Tracy does, to some extent, challenge his loyalty. This is the first time we see Bond threaten resignation, uh, even if he doesn't go through with it and M eventually supports, you know, the action that he's taking. Um, there's still the first, this is still the first time that we three, we see Bond willing to leave MI6, even though over a woman, essentially. But they're still like, you're not leaving. Yeah. Um, so there is a questioning of loyalty with Tracy, even if it's pretty small. Uh, this is another quote from License to Thrill, uh, where Chapman writes, Tracy's greater narrative importance necessitated a break from tradition, sorry, break from tradition for the filmmakers in selecting an established actress to play her, which would also help to counterbalance the inexperience of Lazenby. The casting of Diana Rigg was propi- propitious, propitious. Mm-hmm. I didn't look up the pronunciation of that ahead of time. Uh, like Honor Blackman before her, she was an established action heroine, having succeeded Blackman as John Steed's female partner in The Avengers. Riggs' popular image from her role as Emma Peel was that of a sophisticated, intelligent young woman who was capable of looking after herself in a fight, an image which, which Secret Service refers to when she fights and kills Gunther, played by Yuri Borienko, at the film's climax. While the role of Tracy challenged the traditional role assigned to the girl in the Bond films, more usual characteristics of Bond girls as passive playthings is also represented by the patients at Blofeld's clinic. Inevitably, Bond seduces two of them during his masquerade as Sir Hilary Bray. So again, Diana Rigg was known for acting in The Avengers, where she played a very cool heroine. I'm not 100% sure exactly why they cast her as opposed to anybody else, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's exactly as Chapman suggests, which mm-hmm. is that they wanted someone with experience who would counterbalance Lazenby's inexperience, especially because Rigg already had a, had a following that they could mm-hmm. count on for an audience. If they're like, oh, I love The Avengers, I want to see my favorite Emma Peel, Diana Rigg, in a Bond movie, mm-hmm. then they, ha- they already have an audience, right? Yeah. Uh, even though Lazenby himself does not have an audience because he's only been a, a commercial actor. Um, but despite how Rig was known and even how her character is written, the movie is not really progressive, right, for having a Bond girl who saves Bond for once. It's still backed, it's still packed with nameless women at the clinic, <laughs> clinic right, who are mostly identified by the countries they represent, and that's it. Um, that seems like that seems like Bond. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> there's your Bond. They're beautiful, deadly pawns without interesting stories of their own. They function much like the Bond girls of other films, right? They yeah. are just there to be weapons, to be seduced, etc. Um, Tracy is an exception, which is the reason that he marries her, right? He's not like she. She's not like other girls. She's not like other girls, as they say. Um, this is a quote from Femininity, Seriality, and Collectivity: Rethinking the Bond Girl, which is by Moya Luckett, who writes. Besides blinding actresses to his, to this collective, sorry. Besides binding actresses to this collective, Bond girl attire distances them from their roles, their other roles, and off-screen identities. One iconic outfit, Diana Riggs' low-cut white lace wedding jumpsuit from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, contrasts with her more streamlined The Avengers garb, suggesting a retreat away from modernity and independence that is that is further compounded by her character Tracy DiVincenzo's mental instability, marriage to Bond, and subsequent death. As one journalist points out, the role of helpless heiress feels like a step backward after the smart and karate-kicking Mrs. Peel. 
Although Emma Peel's wardrobe was more varied than her iconic cat suits and streamlined jersey mini dresses suggest, Tracy's fluid and decorative fashions are emblematically feminine, featuring white lace blouses, cleavage, and lots of girlish curled hair. This departure from Riggs' established style suggests efforts to rework her image away from her progressive, strong-willed, and independent Avengers alter ego. Um, just as was fourth Forsyth in Casino Royale, Rig and Tracy might feel progressive on the surface just for the fact of existing, but really they only serve to establish something about Bond. In this case, his masculinity uh, in comparison. Well, in in the case of Casino Royale, it's his masculinity in comparison to Forsyth. They tried, and uh, in in Tracy, it's his ability to grieve. Um, and the interesting story about Bond having to cope with loss is missing from the next film. Mm -hmm. Uh, you only live twice is what actually follows on her majesty's secret service. He gets assigned an easy mission because he starts drinking too much. And M is like, I don't even know if you can be a secret service agent anymore. And Bond is like, of course I can. And then he gives him an easy mission and he fucks up. And then he ends up taking on somebody else's identity and living as somebody else for like nine years. so weird. I don't know why they put you only live twice first. Very weird. I don't know. The, everything about these movies is just weird. weird. Yeah. Choices were made. Um, so Tracy really is just there to be a sad dead girl for Bond to to grieve over for the two minutes between her death <laughs> and the end of the film. Right? And then she's just dropped, except for at the beginning of one of the more films where he visits her grave. That's it. That's the last time we hear. Well, I mean, there's like veiled references to her, like, Sometimes somebody will like make a reference to something that happened in Bond's past and it's probably about Tracy, but like she doesn't really come up again. Um, I can't bring her up. There's other women. There's too many other women now. And like, how are you going to compare to Michelle Yeoh's character in Tomorrow Never Dies? You can't. It can't be done. So time for me to tell you about something. What is it? It is the That Feeling When. Oh, yes. Oracle deck. I need this. This is a 44-card Oracle deck that captures the liminal spaces between big emotions, which we all have. Yeah. Um, that feeling when you lose the keys that were just in your hands or mm. when you dance like nobody's watching or when you wake from a soaring dream. Um, the Oracle deck features inclusive, whimsical collage Im imagery, uh, which has been volunteered by people in the tabletop RPG community. So, so if you're cool. big into tabletop RPGs and... Oracle decks? Here it is. Why are you not getting this? Here it is. Um, it's for you. These cards are available as an exclusive, sorry, at an exclusive Kickstarter price of $35 this month only, which is really good for Seriously. any kind of deck. It's true. Like, that shit gets expensive. Yeah. Um, you can help bring this project to life and learn more and back the project at bit.ly slash TFW Oracle. Or you can find it in our show notes. So you should check that out. Heck yeah. Um, so Never Say Never Again is interesting for a lot of reasons. <laughs> um, <laughs> cultural context here uh, is going to be a little different because I have to I have to give the story behind Never Say Never Again to understand what the hell is going on in Never Say Never Again. <laughs> so the whole story here is, well, first of all, I'm never, excited for the, to learn this. If you've seen Never Say Never Again and you've seen the other Bond films, you might notice this feels a lot like another Bond film starring Sean Connery known as Thunderball. And that is because uh, Kevin McClory, who um, who worked on, on Never Say Never Again, only had the rights to Thunderball. And the reason for that is um, Fleming worked with both Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham on a script for a Bond film. It was unspecified at the time. They were working on a script for a Bond film. And that Bond film was was eventually scrapped. They just went like, no, actually, we're not going to do that. And the, the story that they came up with was Thunderball. 
Fleming went ahead and just used the plot that they all came up with together for the novel Thunderball and did not credit McClory (gasps) or Whittingham. Uh, oh, what a j- he seems like just kind of a jerk. He's kind—I think he was kind of an asshole. Yeah, I think he's just kind of an asshole. So uh, McClory took him to court, and and they had been good friends too. So it was it was pretty it was a pretty shitty thing to do, from my understanding. Uh, McClory took him to court, and he won, which earned him a producer spot on the upcoming Eon film of Thunderball. So basically, he got a producer spot <laughs> on the story that he wrote. Yike. Uh, but he was not allowed to make another Bond film for 10 years. Uh, another lawsuit. Oh, my gosh. So he came. I think he sued again for a different reason. Uh, he got exclusive rights to Blofeld and Spectre, which really? is why they no longer appeared, why they stopped appearing in, in oh. Bond movies. Because you notice how Spectre and Blofeld just disappeared. Yes. It was because McClory got the rights. I don't think I'm... I remember just Spectre but Blowfield just because you, you, you remember that name mm-hmm. and uh, yeah I noticed he was gone yeah um, so McClory got another Bond movie inter- into production but he was shut down by yet another lawsuit because the the rights that he was granted by the initial lawsuit where he sued Fleming stated he was only entitled to Thunderball so he can make as many remakes of Thunderball as he wants but no other Bond properties it is truly wild. Like, why? But you know what? He took full advantage of it because not only does Thunderball exist, but never say never again, a remake of Thunderball also exists. He was ready to do a third adaptation of Thunderball. Which one did you like more? Um, <laughs> Thunderball, I think, was actually one of my favorites of the Connery films. Mm-hmm. Um, never say never again had its moments, though. I think just because I feel like I had to watch this fucking thing i just didn't like it there were parts of it i liked that we'll talk about um yeah we'll talk about both of the parts that i really liked in never say never again which i felt were interesting and fun um but it was it was thunderball if you've seen thunderball you've seen uh a significant portion of never say never again (laughs) they're different like they're different like they did a good job of like reimagining it and like making it a different story but it is still thunderball you can't get away from that. Uh, so this is a quote from License to Thrill, a cultural history of the James Bond film by James Chapman, who writes, The narrative ideology of Never Say Never Again replays that of Thunderball insofar as Bond functions principally as a hero of the NATO alliance. It differs from the origin- the official films of the same period in that it only makes tangential reference to the Cold War, opting instead to base its ideological operations on the Anglo-American relationship. However, the pr- power relationship between Britain and America has shifted since Thunderball. It is American military force alone which provides the backup necessary to defeat Largo's men. There are numerous references to the British Secret Service being financially depleted. So we saw a bit of this idea of Britain's like financial problems in some of the Eon films as well. Um, as I've mentioned, I am not super familiar with British history, uh, particularly not British economic history. I don't know why I would be familiar with that. But if you think that I am, you are sorely mistaken. Um, but from some re- research, there were periods of strict austerity uh, following World War II in England. Um, and there were a series of economic crises in the 1970s and early 80s. So mentions of government austerity, cuts in government spending, and so on were not entirely unexpected. Um, and it's not all that surprising to see them show up in this movie. Um, Britain's economic power was slipping in this time period, and they were quickly being replaced by other countries in the world hierarchy. Like, they slipped to, like, position nine or something like that. And I don't know, nine out of 
what or what the specific thing they slipped for was, but like their reputation as a powerful country was beginning to slide. And that I think is what's turning up in Never Say Never Again. Interesting. That makes sense. Yeah. So you also see in this movie. Did this one get like extra political? Like, or like not political, patriotic? This one, I don't think so. This one seemed actually a little more critical in that it was like, you remember Q is like, I'm freezing down in this basement. They won't even let me have a heater. Oh. Um, it seemed a little more critical of the British government. You might be thinking of one of the Dalton films, which which were a little more politi- uh Oh, not patriotic. Uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service was very patriotic. Maybe, maybe it's that one because that was one of the last ones I watched. Oh, okay. Um. So in in Never Seen Ever Again and also in this time period, you have America becoming a powerful force. Um, and especially in the movie, instead of being just backup or even <laughs> just sort of irritating in the way that they were... Rep- like in earlier films, was, America was kind of like this annoying little brother or something. Faking the moon landing. Yeah. That was the fucking best. <laughs> that was so weird. Um, you don't really have that in this one. Instead, you have them being a significant world power in so like to the extent that they are in fact necessary to defeating the um the uh, Largo the villain of this movie. We'll see like it's pretty it's pretty interesting to see this having I now have just watched Tomorrow Never Dies um which is looking forward quite a bit. In that movie um one of the critics I can't remember which one basically said it's very funny how in this movie they pretend that Britain has a huge navy to command <laughs> versus um Versus Never Say Never Again, where they're like, we can't even get our gadget guy a heater. <laughs> but in the 90s, apparently, Britain had a huge navy. Yeah. You um, know, all that space they have to store it. Pretty wild. Uh, anyway, let's talk about the Bond formula. It sounds like we're just digging at Britain. Like, <laughs> fuck Britain. That's our uh, our God-given purpose as Americans. As Americans, yeah. Um, is to make jokes about the British when really we're just like punching ourselves in the face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, to talk about the, the Bond formula, uh, this is a quote from License to Thrill by James Chapman, who writes, the new younger M believes he, he being Bond, is a relic of the past. Things have been awfully dull around here, says the new Q. Now you're on this. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. <laughs> uh, we actually see this attitude be- become part of the Eon films when we reach Brosnan. Um, in terms of like him being a relic of the past, mm-hmm. um, to the point, and we'll talk about this way more in the next episode, but to the point that, um, Judy Dench as M straight up calls him a dinosaur. Oh my God. I loved her. Yeah. I loved her. I, I think She's just said everything I felt. We're going to have to, well, we'll have to save the M talk for our next episode, but I think casting <sighs> Judy Dench as M was actually a stroke of brilliance. She also doesn't age. It's true. I don't understand it. She just speaks my truth for me. <laughs> also, she was in Cats and she put her leggy in the air. This is true. This is um, true. Which is the actually most- is the same universe. Not a lot of people yeah, know. Yeah, the Cats Bond cinematic universe. Yeah. Um, so we actually see <laughs> Tomorrow this- never cats. Tomorrow never cats. Tomorrow uh, never meows. <laughs> We actually see the the attitude of of Bond as a relic becoming part of the Eon films, um, but I think it really actually starts in in Never Say Never Again, which isn't even canon. Um, there's this acknowledgement that Bond is not just literally old. Um, there is a, a plot line in this movie about Bond getting older, uh, even though he was actually younger than Moore, who was playing Bond in the Eon films at the time. He's about three years younger than Roger Moore, um, but he's playing this old man in uh, in Never Say Never Again. You know. 
you know. Uh, but also the sense that uh, Bond was ideologically old. Like he he started to represent a past generation in a way that no longer was resonating with audiences the way that it was before. Um, but it is interesting, I think, that the movie leans into that, both through the plot about Bond aging, because the movie has like an opening plot of like, Bond, you're getting old, no more red meat, go to this little institution <laughs> or whatever. What year did this come out? This was 83. Yeah, 83. Okay. I'm trying to think of like the next gen like the next generation, um, when they would have like how old they would have been and who's taking over these movies. And if that is having an effect on on this idea of him being a relic of the past. Well, when you get to Brosnan, um, you ha- you do have a whole new group. Yeah, because that's like uh, a whole what, 10 years yeah, in between? Yeah, roughly. 15? And Albert Broccoli passed away and he had been running, him and uh, Saltzman had been running the franchise since its beginnings. Oh, I see. Um, and he passed away between Dalton and Brosnan. Um, and you had... Uh, Albert Broccoli's daughter, Barbara Bro- Broccoli, taking over Best fucking name. the series along with somebody else. You oh, had a new director, that. new composer. You had basically a whole new group hmm. uh, working on the movies. And that's why you had a BMW and not the Aston Martin. <laughs> Bob was telling me how people were really, really upset about that. Yeah, Josh was bummed about the the BMW. Yeah, they must have paid so much fucking There money. was a lot of... We, we are talking too much about Pierce. Sorry. <laughs> it just is more interesting to me. Um, yeah, there's a lot of product placement and advertisements in the new one. Uh, so it is interesting to me that the movie leans into this idea of Bond aging, both through the plot about him literally aging and with Q straight up saying that he hopes that Bond being back is going to restore, restore gratuitous sex and violence. Ridiculous. Like he just like, like they just like straight up leaned into it and they're like, yeah, that's what we want. Um, I don't know that sex and violence were missing from the Eon yeah, franchise seriously. at the time. Uh, but it is interesting that it is actually noted in Never Say Never I'm like, why do you gotta be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, I don't know. I guess it, it comes down to a lot of things. I don't know. I feel really, I feel that the coverage of Roger Moore was really mean um, in in the press at the time. And I think that it was not so much that the movies were lacking, lacking sex and violence so much as the press thought they were lacking sex appeal. Uh, Um, and where I think they're always lacking it. (laughs) Um, it's just not hot. No, I don't know. I think for me, Sean Connery so far, I can see the poll. Like young Sean Connery is pretty attractive. Yeah. Um, but all the others, um, Dalton lo- just straight up looks like Ian Somerville. This is true. He looks like him. He he is. That is true. That that is true. He is. But like, n- I'm still not like, oh, you're attractive. There's no no none of the bonds have really like bowled me over with attractiveness. Which but is, like, go ahead. They're all they're all handsome in their ways, but none of them are like, oh, baby. I guess because they're not trying to be attractive to women. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting that they're supposed to be super attractive to women, but like they're not actually. They're not, yeah. Like, I like which is not to say you, like you can't be attracted to Bond. It's just like it's clear who the uh, who the expected audience is. I'm curious who they'll choose after what's his name, and if I will find him attractive because, like you know, sometimes it's it's the generation that finds a specific type of thing attractive yeah so. I, i'm always interested to see who the next bond is i think going it to should be. be harry styles 
That'd be sick. That'd be sweet. That'd be sick if it was Harry Styles. In ten in like ten years, I if they don't choose Dev Patel, they're they're oh. fucking around. They're fucking around. Dev Patel. He's gotta be a little older. Yeah, it's true. But like if they don't choose Dev Patel, they're fools. It's true. I would agree. They're leaving money on the table. I wanna see Dev Patel in a suit. I want it. Uh I need to get it. I need to get it. Get Ariana on this. Ariana Grande. <laughs> You might have heard of her. You have heard of her. My good friend. My good friend, Ariana Grande. She wants it. She got it. Uh, let's talk about masculinity. <laughs> what? Uh, this movie doesn't seem particularly concerned with Bond's aging as it relates to his masculinity. Obviously, it's super concerned about his aging. And the fact that he isn't, basically. They're like, oh, Bond, you're getting so old. And he's like, okay, let me go and beat up all these people. And let eat, me show you all. And eat red meat and so on. Um so it's it's not really concerned with Bond's aging as it relates to his masculinity, right? He's still great at fighting. So like he's still he's still great at fighting. He's still sexually desirable, all those kinds of things. Like his whatever to whatever degree he has aged, it doesn't seem to be impacting how the films um categorize masculinity, right? Uh, which is pretty different, again, from how Roger Moore was treated, at least in the press, where people seem to question his fitness for the role, not just because he was getting older, but because of what aging looked like in his body. Like, I cannot stress enough how nasty the press was about Roger Moore's aging body. Hmm. Uh, it's fucked up, in my opinion. Um, but there, that doesn't seem to be the case with Never Say Never Again. And I don't know if it's just because Connery aged really well. Probably. And there's probably already it's like built up trust that you can trust his masculinity. Yeah. Cause like, I mean, like, again, I'm not bowled over by the attractiveness of any of the Bond actors, but Sean Connery ages into like this very distinguished gentleman look. Yeah. Um, like, I think that's just, that's just a fact. Um, so he, I think he maybe aged in a way that is more socially desirable. I would say so. Than how Moore aged. But my God, the press was so nasty to Moore. It was hard to read. Well, um, I mean, I mean, there's no excuse for it. But I can see it being like, especially if you're, like you, you're you know, a Bond fan. And then suddenly what you expect Bond to represent, which really kind of feels like is, if it's wish fulfillment and it's not what you want to look like, then mm -hmm. it's like really like, no F you. This is not what, this is not Bond. This is not what I came here for. I don't want to look like that. Yeah. it's in It was very interesting. Um, instead here and never say never again, we have a Bond who seems as fit as ever, right? Even if the story is telling us that he's aging. Uh, in fact, this movie seems to be opposing the idea that an older Bond is somehow useless, which I actually appreciate because I think an older Bond could be interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at retired Bond in Casino Royale. <laughs> that was great. So good. Um, so in The Politics of James Bond by Jeremy Black, um, he brings up uh, this, which I failed to provide a note on. Um, and Never Say Never Again, uh, Fatima Blush is sexually excited by the prospect of killing. At one point, she ecstatically dances down the stairs of the Monte Carlo Casino, jubilant at the prospect of killing Bond. She adds the gratuitous murder of the inexperienced MI5 agent Nicole, showing that she is as much a threat to women as to men. Now, here's one of the things that I absolutely adored about this movie, and it was Fatima Blush. Yeah. She was fucking wild. I just, love a girl who just loves to murder. Yeah, she and and I think this is really interesting in the concept the context of masculinity because a lot of times as we mentioned in the Casino Royale section where um you know Forsyth was used to establish Tre Tremble's masculinity 
Um, I think that a lot of times in the Bond films, the Bond girls are used to establish Bond's masculinity Mm -hmm. by means of opposites, right? Mm -hmm. So Fatima Blush, obviously, in being this not only violent, but like sexually aggressive woman, um, she has to die within the context of the movie, right? But she is othered so much in the movie, the color of her skin, the treatment of her character, um, all that kinds of all that kind of thing. But she just gets to be gloriously, nastily violent love in a it. way that I just loved. Love a nasty, violent girl. I loved it. I thought that she was like the best part of the movie. The two things I really liked about Never Say Never Again were the the aging storyline mm-hmm. because I thought it was really, really interesting in the context of more playing Bond at that time. Yeah, I agree. I thought that that was, I thought that was re- a really interesting take and basically saying Bond still got it. It doesn't matter if Bond is aging, he's mm-hmm. still Bond. And I was like, I think that is actually interesting and adds something to the Eon films, even though it's not an Eon film. And then there, and then there's Fatima Blush who was just so fucking wild. I loved it. I ate that shit up. Um, so this is a quote from License to Thrill, a cultural history of the James Bond films by James Chapman, who writes, Fatima is once again the woman who refuses to be repositioned by Bond, though in contrast to the coolly calculating Fiona Volpe of Thunderball, she is characterized as psychologically unstable. Holding Bond at gunpoint, she demands that he issue a public statement that she had provided him with the greatest rapture of his life. Any woman who presents such a challenge as Fatima to Bond's masculinity to underline the point she aims her revolver at his groin naturally has to meet a grisly end. The uh, She is dispatched spectacularly, blown to smithereens by Bond's exploding Union Jack fountain pen. Um, now, a few a few things to unpack here. Um First of all, she gave me the the idea that she's psychologically unstable honestly just gives me big Azula vibes. <laughs> like she's just yeah. she's fucking nuts and I loved it. I thought it was uh she was so interesting in that way. Unfortunate about the movie she's in. Yeah, unfortunately, um the movie means she cannot just be her glorious wild self. I think she should have killed him and taken over and like it should have ended with her going, I'm I'm Bond. Yeah, James she's Bond. the new. How awesome would that? <laughs> she's have been? the new Bond. Um, I mean, you'd get shit done, probably. Yeah, there's no, there's no second guessing. Like uh, the fact that she straight up demands that he say, like <laughs> that, he, that, she, that he, that she, sorry, she straight up demands that he say that she is the best sex he has ever had, and that is what she is willing to kill for. Is amazing. I love it. I like. I I love that for her. A shame she was brutally murdered by the Union Jack fountain pen. Again, and I think I mentioned this earlier, um, the Union Jack fountain pen obviously representing England. So like this, it's not just Bond killing her. It is the state of England. They're the country of England. Um, England itself is dispatching this woman of color uh, who is too sexually promiscuous and mentally unstable and mentally unstable and violent um, can't have that it is the state enacting violence on people who do not fit the norm uh, and this is also what happens to Mayday another woman of color mm-hmm. who asserts sexual dominance over Bond she also is exploded <laughs> not by a Union Jack fountain pen in that case I think it's just like regular dynamite or yeah, something yeah it's just dynamite um, but again another woman of color asserting sexual dominance over Bond is dispatched by explosion Um, i wonder if we'll see that continue um i don't think so i don't i i really don't think so i don't 
think so. The the relationship with the Bond girls changes yeah. in the Brosnan era. Yeah, he and in the Dalton had sex. And in the Dalton era. Yeah, well, we're we're getting into the nineties. Yeah. Um feminism. N- not just feminism, but the AIDS epidemic. Oh. Uh also true in the eighties, but I think in the and we'll talk again, we'll talk about this in the Brosnan. <laughs> it's just more interesting. <laughs> but um yeah, it I the the promiscuity definitely gets dialed back a bit. Um do you have anything else to say about no never say never strange again? choices? Yeah, I, 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 the Bond franchise, if nothing else, is so interesting in the fact that you can have non-canon films. Like I can't, with I the guess same lead actor with the same and same story. Yeah, because I mean, I'm I'm trying to think of other big franchises where you have non-canon films. And like I guess there's like the Star Wars Star Christmas Wars. special. Oh well, um, yeah, a lot of different Star Wars. Well, I'm talking about films though. Oh, yeah, film. Um, and then I guess hmm. the so the Marvel films are different from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like the Marvel Cinematic Universe is is unified. And now they've made it so no matter what, it can be canon because they opened up the the multiverse. The multiverse they don't even yeah. have to worry about that at all. They're like literally, I can kill everyone and it's fine. So I'll make a movie about someone else. Yeah. So I think it's really unusual to have this this film franchise where you can have multiple non-canon films, especially starring an actor who starred <laughs> as the character. It's wild. It is wild. It's like I find that really interesting, and I don't think that there's a whole lot of other um, comparable media like that and i you know if nothing else the history of bond is very interesting um so let's talk about timothy dalton what does he not look just like ian somerall he does you know he does like he looks i i was staring at him through like the first movie going who the fuck does he look like and then he did his like half smile and i was like he's damon that's him right on screen um let's talk about the cultural context here Um, So The Politics of James Bond by Jeremy Black. Jeremy Black writes, The Dalton films were grittier in plot and tone than the later Moore films. That's for sure. Uh, This was a conscious reaction that was in part related to the more critical and sardonic, if not sarcastic, attitude toward heroism that could widely be seen on television and film in the period. The popular... British television comedy series Blackadder, for example, closed in 1989 with programs presenting World War I as futile, cruel, and unheroic. And I actually think this was a pretty pervasive attitude at the time. So in the 80s, you kind of have the era that gave us things like Watchmen, uh, as well as a number of other really gritty takes on superheroes, um, such as Batman. I think this was Batman the Killing Joke era. I think that was mid-80s. I'm unsure. Um, But it was also the era of the Batman film. That was a revising of the 1960s Batman series, which was very campy and silly. Um, And then you have the Tim Burton film, which, you know, by modern standards, feels downright silly. Um, Did you send me a picture of Damon? No, Timothy Dalton in Wuthering Heights. I straight up thought he was wearing a vampire cloak. <laughs> I thought it was Steven wearing a vampire cloak. I saw that and I was just like, I could just Oh my send God. <laughs> he would slap as a Byron, like as a um uh oh Regency God. era anti-hero, he a Byronic really hero. Does look like Damon. Uh sorry. Uh anyway, so the like, you know, by modern standards, the t- the Tim Burton Batman film is just is silly, but by by the standards of the eighties compared to just on par. Yeah, compared to the 60s television show, like, I'm sure that was the dark night to the 1960s <laughs> television show, right? Um, but it is kind of surprising to see that uh, sardonic take on heroes turn up in a series as uncritically patriotic as the Bond films, right? 
Um, spoiler alert: the Jolton films were not super successful. Um, yeah, and I wonder Probably why there's only two. Yeah, well, that, there's a lot of complicated reasons that I didn't even bother getting into because it's just gonna take too long but uh, I do wonder whether the cynicism of these films was not just not what the Bond audience was looking for even if the idea was popular elsewhere Um, and interestingly this is actually more in line with the attitudes of the books Um, I've only read Casino Royale uh, which I will talk about more when we actually get to Casino Royale because the real adaptation doesn't come until the Daniel Craig era (laughs) Uh, we're getting there Um, but there was a distinct distaste uh, in Casino Royale that Bond had toward his work. And and because of that, it feels much more like the sex and alcohol of the books is a coping mechanism hmm. for his unhappiness um, and his, like, not confusion, but his um, frustration and his cynicism about the role that he occupies. Like, at one point in, in Casino Royale, he, he, like, debates what purpose he even serves like is it is it even ethical to have somebody like him um and this seems to come through at least a little in dalton's portrayal of the character like he's he seems deeply unhappy with being a secret agent um but i think both the unpopularity of um the dalton films and on her majesty's secret service which remember was at that point the truest one to the books um suggest that the films are not only distinct from the books but that maybe people really didn't want a bond that was true to the books at all. Yeah. Like it, they well, it didn't start true to the books, right? No, he so. was, he was pretty different. Like Connery was, uh, we talked about this in our first episode, but he was um, a very different style of, I mean, yeah. now we know for sure we've seen Niven as mm-hmm. bond, even in a comedy setting, we've seen what kind of masculinity Niven represents, which is Fleming's ideal bond yeah. versus Connery's very different. Yeah. So, well, I mean, when you start out showing like, with one thing it's hard to change Mm because people will see it as a change not as a true true to true to the original they just they don't see it that way at all yeah i think film bond eclipsed the novel bond yeah um which is not like inherently a bad thing i don't think that one is inherently better than the other i know that i find the bond i i find the bond that dalton portrays more interesting than most of the other bonds i i i figured out what um movie franchise has non-canon stuff hmm. halloween oh that is halloween true. um maybe texas chainsaw i think i think that this would be more something you would find in horror movies yeah yeah that that definitely sounds true yeah um i think that dalton i think dalton dalton dalton's portrayal of bond was very good i d- i don't know that the movies lived up to his portrayal of bond mm-hmm. um which i find really interesting but i i liked that darker take on bond i found it more interesting than just like him wisecracking and killing a thousand people yeah i think it was it was uh refreshing yeah it it was nice to have i think that thread of darkness running through it well and it just kind of felt more complex i guess yeah and it it was different yeah and i think that that, that's something that's gonna appeal to modern audiences because i think there's kind of been a cultural reappraisal of dalton as bond where it's like no actually he was doing a really good job Hmm. and i think that brosnan kind of straddles the line between um I would say between Moore and Dalton. I agree. Um, so I think that they were kind of trying to course correct a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so in License to Thrill, uh, James Chapman writes, while on one level it is caught between different traditions of the thriller, on another level, The Living Daylights is also, like A View to a Kill, caught between the discourses of Cold War and Detente, with the result that the film performs an uncomfortable sort of ideological split. Sorry, an uncomfortable sort of ideological split. 
Uniquely, the Living Daylights manages simultaneously both to enforce and to transgress the geopolitical boundaries of the Cold War. When the action moves to Afghanistan and Bond teams up with the Mujahideen. Now, it's been a while since I watched it, and I should have looked up how to pronounce this ahead of time, and I didn't. Um, who launch a full-scale attack on Russian on a Russian airbase, the film is unequivocally taking the side of the Afghan resistance against so the Red Army. Personally, I don't find this uncomfortable, which is how Chapman wrote it, so much as a little inconsistent, right? I see it as interesting just as we go into politics and how these movies are supposed to um, fall in line with like different mm-hmm. world power and stuff like that. So like bringing Afghanistan into it kind of feels like, okay, we're starting to get to like more modern... Yeah. More modern political issues happening. Yeah. So it kind of felt like that. that's because, you know, back, I think in the 80s, um, America at least backed Afghanistan. Yeah. I'll get into that a little bit. Yeah. So I thought it was that. I thought that was really interesting. That's something that I think. So I think when we were both you and I were struggling with the plots of the early yes. films. Uh, and I think that was because they were very British and they were about things that we had no fucking idea about. Yeah. Like the um, the fish war. I don't fucking know the Suez the Suez crisis. Fuck. Like we simply just don't know about those things. So like the 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 political touchstones of those eras were not going to land with us. Whereas now we're getting into the territory of even if we didn't like live through them in a way that we could remember, because like we were we would have been alive for uh, License to Kill. We would have been alive for that, but we would have been literal babies. Yeah. But like the the repercussions of of that time period were still prominent enough in our childhood that I think that those conflicts are going to resonate with us in a way that like references to the Suez crisis are not or British austerity are not like we simply don't have the touchstone for that. Yeah. And I think that's why, like part of the reason why when I watched it, I I just was more engrossed in it Mm -hmm. and therefore ended up liking it more than the others. Yeah. Um, So the films thus far have been very ideologically conservative, right? Like Mm -hmm. pretty, pretty fucking conservative. So to see them kind of flirting with the idea of Bond supporting a rebellion um, was actually really refreshing. And one of the things that I liked about Dalton's era, uh, I am not super invested in a spy who unquestionably serves the government. Like, that's just not interesting to me. But I am interested in a spy who struggles with what he's doing, which is precisely what is going on in the Dalton films, which I think is why I found them more interesting. Um, that said, <laughs> I don't think the shift was particularly revolutionary or progressive or anything. Uh, the films are still pretty damn conservative. Yeah. I think it's fairly easy to root for a group of scrappy rebels, especially when that rebellion was financed by many world powers, including Britain and the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, paving the way for the war on Afghanistan waged by the U.S. in the 2000s. Just you know who we're, You know who we're fighting against in the 2000s? The people that we gave weapons in the 80s. We did that to ourselves. Uh, (laughs) We did that to ourselves. Much of the support for the rebels was less, quote unquote, support of the rebels and more uh, opposition to the Soviet Union. It was less, you're my friend and more the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And then Um, that imploded. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not super quick to clap for Bond on being progressive by, by supporting the rebels in this instance. I feel like they like just were uh, like, oh, this is perfect. Yeah. Let's just use this. It's not so much that like, I think the, the rebels were bad. I simply don't know enough about the conflict to say one way or the other. So much as we know we don't like Russians. (laughs) Yeah. So much as I can't, I can't applaud the Bond films for supporting an easy, 
an easy group to support when they were the, you know, the enemy of the enemy. Um, these issues are always complicated and I encourage you to do some reading about the conflict rather than just listen to what I'm saying. Cause I don't know anything. No one soundbite me saying because we hate Russians. <laughs> yeah. The we there was referencing, uh, the films as a whole, the films and the mentality uh, and the U S currently. Yeah. Um, yeah, these things are really complicated. I encourage you to do some reading um, simply because I don't know anything. And I hope that the, this is my uh, soapboxing moment about my own podcast for a moment here. But my goal with this podcast is not to teach you things so much as to encourage you to use your brain to teach yourself things. Um, we are not teachers. Don't listen to me. I don't know shit. I listen to Missy. And I know and now shit. look at her. Now look at me. Now look at her. I'm... An adult. A disaster. An absolute disaster. <laughs> Just um, like my cat. Yeah. Uh, so this is a quick, another quote here from License to Thrill by James Chapman. Chapman writes, Yet at the same time as taking a pronounced anti-Russian stance as far as the war in Afghanistan is concerned, the living daylights is also paradoxically concerned to distance itself from the political dimensions of the Cold War through its suggestion that Soviet communism is not, as Raymond Durgnot puts it, enemy number one. It borrows from Octopussy the idea of a renegade Russian general in league with a more conventional Bond villain and whose conspiracy does not have official sanction. However, there is no suggestion of any political or ideological rationale behind Koskov, who in this sense is more akin to Zorin of a view to a kill, and that he is motivated purely by greed. The complicated drugs and arms deal in which <laughs> the complicated deal, that's just the Bond film, um, <laughs> in which Koskov deals not only with an American arms dealer, but with the Afghan resistance fighters whom the weapons are designed to be used against, crosses both geographical and ideological boundaries. So in The Living Daylights, there's almost this attempt to shift away from espionage as a political thing and like toward espionage as I like, I don't know what something else like it's it seems to be like trying to be apolitical as far as espionage goes. Yeah, I didn't really feel. Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, It's really weird because you can't divorce espionage from <laughs> politics, right? Especially when Bond works for the government. Uh, well, was this a time in like was was like the Bond franchise waning in popularity were they yeah. trying to like gain more people by not alienating anyone i think they were they were stumbling at the end of the Moore era um and the dalton era unfortunately for the bond franchise also could they continued to not be as popular um it was probably just another world in which they hadn't adapted Bond to work. Mm -hmm. We're we'll we'll get into this a little bit, but it was being outcompeted by American action films at the mm -hmm. time. So this was the rise of Lethal Weapon, uh, ah. Die Hard, uh, the the other ones. Um, okay, that would make sense because they're not spies; they're more action heroes, and it's pulling away from that spy mentality and definitely more towards an action. Yeah, and they're very more like. Uh, Bruce Willis in in Die Hard is an everyman, right? Yeah, he's he's not he's not a gentleman spy. He's just a dude. He's just a, he's just a dude. Um, uh, so I guess they kind of sidestep the idea that like because you know you can't divorce espionage from politics. Like you just can't. Um, I mean, I guess there's like corporate espionage, but that's different. Uh, Bond works for the government. So they kind of sidestep that a bit in License to Kill because he resigns, right? Meaning he's no longer operating with government authority. And I think that's a really interesting move and one that would probably have led to an intriguing new direction for the series. Uh, but, but Dalton didn't do another movie for a whole bunch of really complicated reasons. Uh, so it never really got fully explored. So we're going to have to see how it goes into the Brosnan era. Um, personally, I would have loved to see a, a Bond outside of MI6. Secret Service, whatever. Um, but all we got was License to Kill. 
Um, so this is a quote from The Politics of James Bond by Jeremy Black. Uh, there had indeed been a death of history, quote unquote, in the sense of competing grand ideologies to employ a concept advanced after the end of the Cold War. Sacred Space, Butcher's Meditation Institute, is a religious experience designed solely to act as cover for the drug trade. This not only offers an, un- an ironic uniting of religion and drugs. In addition, there is an amusing satire on television evangelism and on alternative religion. Butcher's Meditation Institute even makes a profit from the latter. His quote, own private meditation chamber, unquote, constructed from the quote unquote sacred rocks of the original temple is for seduction. This is a less contentious target than an explicit attack on Christian evangelism. So the Cold War is definitely still a backdrop to Dalton's films, right? Like Russia's always there, whether or not they're the direct enemy or the antagonist are always there. Um, but there does seem to be a shift in focus towards smaller areas of commentary. It's not just like Russia bad or China bad. Um, instead, we're going towards this, honestly, I think very good attack on evangelism. Always. The association between evangelism, meditation clinics, and so on. Um, to be clear, the movie is not attacking Christianity or meditation as practices, right? Like, it's not about those things. It is attaching the extremely weird relationship between those things and profit, especially within the U.S. Because yeah. when you really think about it, hey, what the fuck? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Um. And I think the specific characterization of both of them as they were in the 80s and into the early 90s, which is sort of boisterous, the power suits, etc., is actually really pointed and effective critique. Yeah. To have all of that associated with one. Like, I actually think that's really effective. Um, Good job. Whether it has any teeth or not, I think is debatable, right? Because this is a series where like people will just blow up the moon. Um, <laughs> but I did think that it was interesting to see this really clear line between televangelism, dirty money, drug running, and meditation centers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can the look basics, at, yeah. You know, they um, walk into a bar. <laughs> you can uh, one of I think probably I'm not up 100 percent sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if the PTL club. Um, was an inspiration here, which you can look into. Um, obviously, televangelism still exists today. It's not like it died out in the 80s, uh, unfortunately. But It's getting more popular suddenly. Yeah. Um, but I think there is something like uniquely... 80s about the the like the fact that the the evil guy runs a meditation center but he also has a secret drug running thing centered yeah. on a televangelist played by Wayne Newton <laughs> who Josh kept calling John Wayne. I mean fair. Oh yeah. So let's talk about the formula. Always. Uh the politics of James Bond by James Black, Jeremy Black, not James Black. Uh he writes, The Living Daylights was possibly the darkest portrayal of Bond on screen, a Bond contemptuous of his orders and willing to defy instructions accordingly rather than to ignore them out of fun or to fulfill the mission. Such an account had hitherto been confined to the printed page. So again, like on Her Majesty's Secret Service, we have a Bond that is more true to the books. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people liked it. So interesting. Because it didn't really. Um, well, I don't think that Dalton was as poorly received as Lazenby, in part because Dalton is he's a good actor. He's an established actor. He's like a he's like a stage actor primarily. Um, and in part because by by the time we get to Dalton, he is now the fourth canon bond. Right. Therefore, he's no longer being exclusively compared to Connery, who was who was at the time of Lazenby, the only bond. So Lazenby is only compared to Connery, who everybody loved. And 
Dalton is now being compared to Lazenby, to Moore, and to Connery. And, and if they really hated Lazenby and Moore. And and many did, especially at the end of Moore's run. Like, it is not a surprise that Dalton was better received. Um, but even so, these movies are still not as popular as many of their predecessors. Um, and there's a variety of reasons that that could be the case, right? Uh, we've been over many of them. But the fact that Dalton's bond is closer to the book and uh, the plots were closer to the book's you know, overall, they tended to not be as popular. That to me suggests that audiences really weren't here for Bond novel adaptations. They wanted the Bond film formula. Well, and you know, they seem to, you know, be able to follow a, a plot better and people just, just don't like that. Yeah. They're not and here think, for the plot. Truly. Bond without plot. <laughs> I think, because I mean, we talked about this a bit earlier, the Bond films as a genre, not as yeah. a... Um, not just as a franchise, but as a specific genre. And I think we're venturing further out of what people considered the Bond genre mm-hmm. at this t- at agree. this point. Um, so again, not super surprised that they weren't really well received. Um, so this is a quote from License to Thrill by James Chapman, who writes, If M represents Bond's symbolic father figure, as has often been suggested by Echo and Bennett, among others, then this scene, referring to the scene where Bond resigns from MI6 is acting out an Oedipal scenario otherwise absent from the Bond films, though present in the novels. In assigning Bond to a personal vendetta rather than an official official mission, the film repudiates the professional code of ethics that Bond himself had so often inserted in the past. When I kill, it's on the specific orders of my government, as he had told Scaramanga in The Man with the Golden Gun. So here we have this, like, he's just straight up violating the, the code of ethics that he laid out for himself. Um... Again, this is what is interesting to me about these movies, specifically the Dalton era, and something I wish we had seen more of. Um, I think by the time we get to Daniel Craig's Bond, we do. Uh, If I remember correctly, the plot of Skyfall is very much, you're all terrible, stop. Um, But I haven't seen it in ages. (laughs) Is it supposed to be good? Skyfall? Yeah. You've seen Skyfall. Is that the Haunted House one? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, Skyfall, Skyfall, I think, is great. It's probably up there with the best Bond. Films. I only I started um, like two thirds of the way in though. Oh, okay, it's very good, and I haven't seen it in years, but I remember it being very good, and I do remember being a little more critical um, of things at that time period. I just really liked the end because it was legit like a fucking haunted house. Yeah. <laughs> um, by moving away from Bond's actions being sanctioned by the government and toward him acting of his own volition, the movies are to a very, very, very slight extent uh, questioning the role of state power. Right. Just it's very slight. It's just very, put it on tip of toe. Yeah, but it's there. Um, sure, we trust Bond and we know it's going to work out okay because that's the way these movies work, right? But in giving individuals a license to kill, the government is setting up potential revenge quests like revenge quests like the one that Bond undergoes. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, Bond's quest is validated, right? And it's the government that's wrong. But even that is actually a more interesting take than previous movies where Bond was just the gun wielded yeah. by the state. I think it's more interesting than if Bond had been wrong and the state had been correct than to say like Bond is actually correct and the state is wrong. Um, And again, I don't want to praise this for being super progressive because it's not. It just shows that as time goes on, these movies either have to evolve or entirely stagnate. Yeah. I think they had a lot of issues with not evolving correctly while still keeping that audience. Like they, I mean, how do you evolve into the eighties, but still keep that very gentleman, ridiculous James Bond. They don't really match. Especially when you're no longer the gold standard standard of action films. Like, yeah, now you're, you're being compared to true lies, which is actually just a James Bond ripoff. Essentially. I feel like 
James Bond in the 80s would just be doing so much cocaine. Oh, absolutely. The the gentleman's drug. Yeah, he'd be doing so much <laughs> cocaine. I mean, they probably were. That's true. Um, in li- don't talk about that. In License to Thrill, uh, again by James Chapman, he writes, License to Kill significantly remodels the generic, and I think here that's generic as in like referring to a genre, not generic as in like... Generic brand. Yeah. Um. License to Kill significantly remodels the generic conventions of the Bond narrative so that many of the expected incidents and situations are missing from the film. While this may be seen as an attempt to ring the changes on the Bond film formula, it can be argued that the changes made are so drastic that License to Kill loses the distinctive generic identity mm-hmm. of a Bond film and instead become comes to resemble something more like Dirty Harry or Lethal Weapon. Um this was really the era of the action film genre as we know it today, right? I mean, it would have been hard. It would have been hard to adapt to this. Yeah, I, I agree. And to still stay true to the Bond formula. Um, because these action heroes just are not James Bond, right? Yeah. They're not James Bond. They're, they they don't f- obviously don't follow that formula, but like they don't, you know, they're not using high-tech, um, very fancy um what's the word i'm looking for? gadgets and stuff gadgets that are uh smart <laughs> they're using guns right they're not using like smart weapons or something yeah um so in addition to you know dirty harry and lethal weapon as as chapman mentioned you also have uh die hard first blood robocop robocop Robo actually Robo-Cop. was critical of the heiress politics in a way that bond really isn't um i don't think that losing the bond identity was necessarily a bad thing uh, especially when I think about how different the modern Bond films mm-hmm. feel from the originals. Um, Bond really has been on a journey as a genre. I mean, I feel like we needed this 80s Bond era to get to a different Bond. I agree. I, and I think that um, I like I think whether or not you enjoy the experience of watching all of these movies, I think it is fascinating to see how it has changed over time. Yeah. Um, like it's just genuinely so interesting. Um, I imagine that for audiences who are really into Bond at this time, there was probably was a feeling of loss because what had been so firm was now very, very different, right? Like Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's comparable. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bond went on even longer than Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So imagine the <laughs> the fury over like these changes. Um, just, you know, then they just give it a couple of years and then people look back and like, actually that was pretty good. Yeah. They'll start the next one. And then people will now think fondly of the one that came before, (laughs) um, license to kill did not perform as well from a financial standpoint. And it did in fact, like straight up made the production company reconsider the bond formula. Like they were straight up like, okay, we're, something's wrong here. We got to fix it. Um, Another quote here from License to Thrill by James Chapman, who writes, Official publicity once again suggested that the new actor, Dalton, was closer to Ian Fleming's conception of Bond, and there was a general view that Dalton would make a more serious, hard-edged Bond than his predecessor. According to director John Glenn, Timothy Dalton was very different, much more sinister in the sense he's very, he's very real. You can believe he's going to kill someone. Dalton's style of performance, in fact, is different from both the eyebrow acting of Moore and from the brawny physicality of Connery. His bond is more intense, saturnine, Byronic. He moves purposefully and smiles only rarely. Dalton brought his a brooding, dangerous quality to the character, which differentiates his bond from all the others. Now, I personally, I think this, all, this whole quote makes a lot of sense, but I really latched on to the idea of him as Byronic here because I think that is key to Dalton's reception, mm-hmm. um, especially as we'll see in the next quote. So Byronic uh, refers to a romantic as in the art style, not romance. Um, 
it refers to a romantic hero who is moody and brooding and usually a rebel in some form, which very much does not describe the previous Bond, right? Yeah. Previous Bonds, you would not describe them as moody or brooding or rebellious. He was a tool of the state and he was usually just doing his job. Just While wisecracking and seducing the ladies. Yeah. Fucking and cracking. Um, <laughs> as they did in the as back they then. Did. Uh, so that does those those words do not describe the previous bonds, but they do work pretty well to describe Dalton. He is in fact moody. Mm-hmm. He is in fact brooding, and he is a rebel to some extent. So while Timothy Dalton is dangerous, right in this role, he appears more dangerous than especially more. Um, there is a sense of romance about a character like this, both yeah. in the capital R romantic sense and in the lowercase R romantic sense. All these changes make him so much more interesting. Yeah. Um, as we know, these kinds of characters are often attracted to audiences, especially female audiences. Yep. The yep. ladies yep. love a Byronic hero. Yep, 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 yep. I'm ladies. I'm um, ladies. What I am <laughs> also ladies. You broody? Yeah. Moody? Here for it. Yeah. That's all I gotta say. Well, I keep forgetting my TikTok. Well, I can't say for certain that that's what happened with Dalton's Bond because I simply didn't see that reception. It is entirely possible that longtime male fans of the series did not like the sort of introspective and broody direction for Bond. Uh, Again, I can't say that definitively, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. So that'll transition us nicely into talking about masculinity. All right. Uh, So a quote here from The Politics of James Bond by Jeremy Black, who writes, Dalton's brooding intensity also led to odd reflective comments in the living daylights. But in practice, although less glib than more, Dalton was neither one thing nor the other. He tried to make Bond human, subject to pain and disheveled after combat. And this proved a mistake. Handsome and a good actor, Dalton appeared somewhat detached from the Bond persona, less humorous than Connery, let alone more. And compared to such contemporary action heroes as Bruce Willis, he seemed effete. Effet, effet, and unthreatening. Although The Living Daylights was more violent than the earlier Bond films, Dalton lacked the physical authority of Connery. The tuxedo-clad Bond contrasted with the begrimed torso of Willis, and Bond seemed to come, seemed to some, almost a puppet at once unreal and flimsy. Hmm. Now, the comparison to Bruce Willis here is really interesting in light of a lot of feminist criticism of Die Hard, which analyzes the way that Willis is treated by the camera and his his positioning in the films as being more feminine than masculine, Hmm. which just reminds me that someday we are going to have to do an episode on Die Hard. It is true. Um, It is interesting. And I can get angry with everyone about it's a Christmas movie. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone says it is except Missy. It's not just me. I know. I'm being hyperbolic. Yeah. Credit where credit's due. It's not just me. It's like four other people. No, there's... I'm not getting into this. Anyway, It's not a Christmas movie. Don't um, add us. So, despite the fact that he... That um, Dalton's Bond was touted as more frightening, he was actually less intimidating and therefore less masculine in terms of the coding of these films than other modern action heroes. And that may just have been at odds with what people wanted from action films at the time. Like people weren't, I think so. people weren't necessarily into the brooding, the brooding intensity. They wanted, they wanted punchy, shooty, bang, bang. Um, (laughs) That exact genre. Known action hero, punchy, shooty, bang, bang. (laughs) Coming soon to TV. Grew up on Chitty Chitty Bang. Yep. Also by Ian Fleming. <laughs> it comes full circle. Um, it all makes sense. We're going to have to revisit this a bit when we get to Brosnan and then Craig, both of whom are marked by different cultural conditions. Um, but I think it's interesting that Dalton's masculinity was called into question when there is literally nothing about him that suggests he isn't masculine. I don't know. 
I think it's just that appealing to men is just different. Yeah, I, I think that maybe... I don't know. Maybe there is something to this Damon comparison, this Damon Salvatore so. comparison. I think so. Um, it's just he's 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 just different in a way that I find really compelling. And it's not to say that men don't like both of our husbands. Both think both I think said that Dalton was their favorite of the Bonds. Yeah, my husband said he loved Dalton, but rewatching it, he was like, "Oh no, it's okay." Now he's really excited about Brosnan. So who knows? Yeah, I think that. So here's my my opinion is that I think. Dalton was a really good Bond, but the movies were not quite up to Dalton. I agree. I would agree with that. I, I think that the movies were not quite there, but Dalton was doing a great job. I would totally agree with that. Um, So I, I would have loved to see more Dalton, but we only got the two for a lot of really complicated reasons. Um, it, Dalton's really just interesting in retrospect to me that yeah. people didn't, didn't respond to that. And I guess it's just because that's not what people wanted of the Bond franchise. I'm really excited now to get to Craig and see like, yeah. did people like Daniel Craig at first? Because yeah, it doesn't seem like they would. Um, I think, as I mentioned, I think Pierce Brosnan really straddles the line between Dalton and Moore. Um, he's very, he's very charming. He's funny. Um, but he can also really pull off the, the darkness at times. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in the first one, uh, golden eye, just because of what the plot is. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited cool. to talk about that, but now we come to the most important part of yeah. the episode. Um, where we talk about the theme songs. I can't remember them, but I do think that, but I, I am going with my gut and saying the casino Royale one. There was no casino Royale one. Oh, Oh, I see there. I only go with my gut because I really liked that one. Um, yeah. But there isn't one, so then I'm wrong. Yeah, so you're full of shit. I'm full of shit. Give me one second. I know I did not like... Hold on, Hold on Mary. I need to read them first. Because oh, sorry. not everybody is looking at our outline. So Casino Royale didn't have a theme song. Uh, so the one in On Her Majesty's Secret Service was We Have All the Time in the World, which is Louis Armstrong. Mm. That was all right. Uh, followed by Never Say Never Again by Lanny Hall, uh, The Living Daylights by Aha, and License to Kill by Gladys Knight. I think my favorite of these was The Living Daylights. I was I was gonna say I think I don't think I liked License to Kill. I think the one you just played was fine, and I would probably agree with that. But I don't think there's any that really stuck out to me in this, as opposed to. Yeah, I think I think The Living Daylights was my favorite because I think The Living Daylights had like that good 80s uh that 80s sound. Yeah. And it, I mean it's aha, so um I guess maybe it felt more updated. Okay, yeah, we listened to it and I think The Living Daylights slaps. I think Never Say Never Again was all right, but it didn't like wasn't super memorable. Uh so I'm going to go ahead and give this one to The Living Daylights. Is that fair? I would agree with that. Yeah, okay. I would. I I definitely know I did not like the last one. It's no. Uh, it's no. Whatever the li- live and let die is the name of the live and let die song. Jesus, it's no live and let die. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, it's no no diamonds are forever, but solid song. So that's going to do it for this episode. All right. <laughs> now that we've done the most important thing, uh, you can find us online at fakeygirlscast.com, which has links to all of our previous episodes, all that kind of stuff, anything you want to find, the whole the whole thing, everything, the whole internet's there. Um, you can also find a link to our podcast studio, Penwich Studios, Ch- Penwich Studio, singular. Just one. I, I, it's past, it's not you past my what? bedtime, but it feels like it is. It's been rough. It's, it's been, been a rough couple we've days. We've been a rough couple weeks. Really? Yeah, it's true. It's been rough. Um, anyway, check check it out. 
check, 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 check it out. Yeah. As, what, 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 what as the Beastie about? Boys say. Um, my favorite Bond movie. <laughs> my favorite Bond movie is, you know, they don't they have a, are they licensed to ill? Yes. Yes, they are. Yeah. They know. They know what's up. Um, if you like the podcast and you're like, I wish I could talk about this with other people, um, we have a Discord. Yep. You can join it. Just send me an email. Contact thefakeygirlscast.com. We'll send you an invoice. I just an invoice. <laughs> an invoice you must have to pay. <laughs> you don't have to pay. <laughs> you must I pay just... with a picture of your pet. Uh that'd be if you have a picture of a pet and you want to provide that as uh, an entrance fee, you we'll may. Take it. We'll, we'll we will take happily it. accept there that. There is a whole whole uh different channel for your pets. Yeah. So I just don't post the link publicly. For many different for many re- different reasons, um, but it is it is totally open to join. Just send me an email. We get some good, interesting. We do conversations. We do. Um, next good time about those cheese curds. Yeah, we had a whole thing about cheese curds. Since I went the fuck off about cheese curds in our <laughs> what we've been up to episode, we went on a whole journey about cheese curds. Cheese curds are delicious. Uh, official snack of fakey girls. It's cheese true, curds. It's true. It's true. <laughs> um, we actually shuffled our episodes a little bit because I could not watch three seasons of a show in two weeks. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, so we are going to be doing the Pierce Brosnan Bond episode next, followed by the Almighty Johnsons, and then we will be doing the Daniel Craig episodes. I um, can't believe we're almost to Craig. Yeah, which is going to bring us right into the newest movie, which comes out October 8th. It worked out so well. It did. Well, we planned it this way. I know, but let's just say it worked out. It I mean, was just fate. It, it was, was meant just, to be. It was, it was fate. I did not schedule them. Nope, to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was fate. Um, so yeah, Brosnan is going to be up next. We were going to do the Almighty Johnsons first, but we're going to do Brosnan first, and then the Almighty Johnsons, and then Daniel Craig, and then we will finally be out of Bond. There no will more be Bond. No more Bond. We will not be bonded. To we will not be bonded to Bond any further. Um, and that's it. All right. Catch you on the flip side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.